day of COVID complexities, a global town hall. No matter where you are today, we are so glad to have you here. My name is Matthew Hughes, and I serve as the Executive Director of the International Relations Council, the Kansas City affiliate of the World Affairs Councils of America. The World Affairs Councils of America is a national network of apolitical, nonpartisan educational organizations around the US dedicated to fostering grassroots understanding of and engagement in international affairs. We would like to thank particularly our World Affairs Council colleagues from Harrisburg, Denver, Tennessee, Western Massachusetts, Colorado Springs, and Kentucky and Southern Indiana for their help with planning this event. We would also like to thank our generous sponsors for this global town hall, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology and the University of Kansas Medical Center. They recognize the significance of this discussion in contextualizing the COVID pandemic and understanding its trajectory as a matter of public health and global citizenship. Thank you to them. It's hard to believe that at this time last year, none of us could have accurately predicted what life would be like right now. Few of us in the general public knew anything about what a coronavirus is, much less the sort of significant impacts 2020 would see and the impacts have been many and challenging. There's been a lot written and said about COVID-19 in the last few months, but in the United States, we've heard far less about its impact and prospects in the developing world. Our hope is that tonight's conversation, coupled with part two tomorrow, changes that and carves out the space and time we need to meaningfully consider this pandemic in a truly global context. This evening's program will begin momentarily with our esteemed keynote presentation, followed by an illuminating panel discussion with journalists who cover different regions of the world. As you have questions throughout the program, we invite you to send them in using the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen, and we'll be happy to pass them along to the moderator. We also welcome our visitors on Facebook and invite you to, to do the same in the Facebook comments. Please do join us tomorrow evening as well for the second part of the discussion focused on the global response to COVID and the pandemic's future. It is now my great pleasure to welcome our keynote presenter for this global town hall to help us understand pandemics past, present, and future. Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel is Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. From January 2009 to January 2011, he served as Special Advisor for Health Policy to the Director of the White House Office of Management and Budget. Dr. Emanuel received his MD from Harvard Medical School and his PhD in Political Philosophy from Harvard University. He has written and edited nine books and over 200 scientific articles and is currently a columnist for the New York Times. Dr. Emanuel, welcome and thank you so much for joining us. The floor is yours. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, this is a very important uh, topic. Um, let me begin uh, in a place that many of you may not think is relevant, but the 1960s and 70s. It was at that time that we had an explosion of antibiotics, vaccines, and many, many people in the established medical community thought infectious disease diseases were a thing of the past. We had 
prevention through vaccines. We had treatment. Um, we just didn't have to worry about them. And only uh, foolish people would go into infectious diseases. Thankfully, there were enough foolish doctors to continue because it wasn't too long thereafter that the world was confronted with HIV. Initially, we didn't know it was an infectious disease, but it became pretty clear in the mid 1980s that we were confronted with an infectious disease. Since the turn of the century, we've had a number of infectious diseases that have spread around quite rapidly. We had SARS, as you know, in 2000 and 2003 and 2004. We had H1N1 in 2009 and 2010, and I happened to be in the White House participating in managing that for the White House. We had two episodes of Ebola in West Africa um, and in the Congo. We had uh, MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome uh, virus, another coronavirus. Uh, we had Zika. Um, we've had plenty of infectious diseases. We've also had outbreaks of measles in this country as well as, well as meningococcus, uh, mainly due to lack of vaccinations. It's not the case that infectious diseases are has been. It's the case that we have serious infectious diseases, and as we're learning from this COVID, serious threats of pandemics. I began intersecting in the topic of pandemic preparedness and how to think about it in 2005, when the then Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mike Levitt, um, commissioned uh, work on how to plan for an influenza pandemic because he saw the threat of SARS and thought that the United States was underprepared. Uh, I got involved because they created a priority ranking system for who in this country ought to receive vaccine in the case of a pandemic. Um, and I thought their priority ranking system was wrong. But it led me to think deeply about pandemics and preparation. Uh, since 2005, in that initial report by HHS, there have been a number of updates in 2008, 2017. Many people in the government recognize the threat potential of pandemics, and yet we took very little action. Why did we take very little action? Well, the answer is pretty clear if you think about human psychology. Yes, the magnitude of the harm, as we're learning, is quite large but the likelihood of the event occurring quite small. The last pandemic we had was in 1968, last flu pandemic we had was in 1968. Worldwide, roughly a million people died. It wasn't that bad. Um, and in the 20th century, we had three flu pandemics, 1918, which of course was horrendous, 1957, which was slightly, uh, was slightly worse than 1968 and then 1968. And I think people became complacent, thinking we had vaccines, we could get on top of this. You saw that in this administration, because while they were warned about the importance of preparing for a pandemic, and mostly people were focused on flu, uh, they um, hired a uh, person to address pandemic threats on the National Security Council, Admiral Zimmer. I actually urged them to hire Admiral Zimmer. 
I spoke with the president himself about it and they did hire him, but then they quickly ended up firing him and did no preparation. Let's face it, our response to this pandemic has been abysmal. There's no country in the world that has some special treatment or special way of detecting COVID. We're all countries in the same boat. And yet many countries, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, have done much better than the United States has. We have had a singularly terrible response. Why? I would say that there are three reasons. The first and most important is poor leadership. We have a leader who changes his message, has not gotten on message, um, and is incapable of management and addressing problems. He was told to lock down the country at the end of February at the latest, and again in March. Uh, he was told to create a number of working groups to address problems of testing, PPE, ventilators, vaccines, therapeutics. He didn't do that. It was just an abysmal result. And simultaneously, he undercut federal agencies. Second, partially because of that leadership, but not only because of that leadership gap, there has been inconsistent messages. One of the things the CDC has often said is you need a consistent message and you need to repeat it often. And even the CDC did not follow its own advice. We have not had a consistent message and it's therefore hard for the average person who doesn't pay attention that deeply to know what to do. And the third problem is we have never taken the time we have to actually address and put in place the testing, tracing, and isolation regime we would need. To get our arms around this, it's not that difficult. We would need about eight to 10 weeks of lockdown, and I believe the American public has the fortitude for that. To bring the rate of new cases down, it would have to be national as we've learned. We would then have to ease up having people wear masks, keep distance, have hand hygiene. So I think that is possible. Where do we go from here? Well, clearly this administration and much of the world is betting on a vaccine and having a vaccine that can address the problem. We are having, there are probably 200 vaccines in development. Uh, we have uh, now more than 20 in human, more than 30 in human trials. Uh, we have a number in phase three trials looking for efficacy. Proving a vaccine is effective is only part of the challenge. There are additional challenges. Inside the United States, there's the challenge of producing enough and multiple steps towards packaging it, sending it out, and actually administering it. Just to give you a flavor for those challenges. We need special glass vials, not the glass that you're used to or drink out of, but special glass that moderates the temperature. There are only a handful of companies, one in the United States, Corning, and a couple in Europe that actually make that glass. We need stoppers, and we need hundreds of millions, if not billions, of these. Then 
we may need a cold chain. We will then also need to fill these uh, vials. Uh, that's called fill finish. Put the vaccine in there and stop them. That is done in factories that are 100 times more sterile than surgical operating rooms in hospitals. You cannot just flip your fingers and put them up. The world has been running pretty low on excess capacity of fill finish facilities. We run at 85 to 90%, the whole world in fill finish for all vaccines. If we take some of that offline to put it, to redirect it towards COVID, there'll be other vaccines that won't be done. We need new fill finish lines and new fill finish uh, factories. Um, the government needs to do that and yet, we have only done a little bit of that in terms of getting new lines up and running. Once you have fill finish, you actually need syringes and needles. Again, hundreds of millions, if not a billion needles just for the United States, because we're most likely gonna have to give everyone two shots, at least of the initial vaccines. Um, there aren't that many companies that actually produce syringes and needles in that kind of quantity. Uh, BD is the main one. And it's only recently that the government has actually let out a contract with them to install another line to produce enough syringes. And then it has to get to communities and be administered. Now on a good year, we administer 109, 110 million influenza vaccines. That won't be enough to get herd immunity to COVID. We would need to administer over 230 or 250 million uh, people. Uh, in addition, we probably have to uh, um, vaccinate them twice uh, because all the vaccines that we're looking at are, at the moment, are required two vaccinations. That adds complexity. It requires figuring out who gets it and then uh, being sure that they get the second one four weeks later. There will be a huge loss unless we have good technology and good ability to track down people and make sure they get that second dose. We're not gonna have enough vaccine in the United States. There's now a National Academy uh, panel that is looking into how we prioritize people in the United States to get a vaccine. Uh, they've just uh, released their report for public comment. Um, one of the things that is interesting in that report, and I recommend it to you, if you're at all interested in how we're gonna distribute the vaccine, is that in tier one uh, at the top, uh, our healthcare workers, first line responders, in tier one B, uh, include people who are at significant risk because of their comorbidities, their other health condition and diseases. It turns out in the United States, that group is 193 million people. Two thirds of the population is at high, significantly high risk. Those are people with obesity and diabetes and emphysema and cardiac disease and cancer. We're gonna need Rationing inside rationing. Um, and you who are listening to this 
and who might otherwise be healthy and not over 65, you'll be down the list of getting a vaccine. Um, and how that happens and its ethics is open to question. I want to conclude by saying a word or two about what's evolving regarding distributing vaccine among countries. After all, you're a uh, council that is interested in world affairs, and therefore the distribution of vaccine, not within the United States, but among countries is of great interest to you. You may have seen yesterday's announcement by the president that we're not joining this COVAX facility. The COVAX facility is a mechanism set up by the WHO, Gavi, which is an organization that distributes vaccines to low and middle income countries, and CEPI, which is an organization for emergency preparedness for pandemics. They've set up this organization called COVAX to buy vaccine and distribute to countries. They're committed to distributing it fairly and equitably. That's not the only group that's committed to distributing vaccine fairly and equitably. Actually, vaccine manufacturers, AstraZeneca has publicly said that they want to have a broad and equitable distribution. A couple of days ago, the CEO of Lilly said that there needs to be broad and equitable distribution of a vaccine to other countries and we shouldn't just keep a vaccine for the United States. In addition, leaders of many countries have suggested that we need a fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine. Justin Trudeau led seven prime ministers of countries in writing an op-ed in the Washington Post about the need for a fair and equitable distribution and a commitment by these countries to a fair and equitable distribution. The only problem is almost no one defines what a fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine looks like in this pandemic. How do you distribute a vaccine? Well, tomorrow at 2 p.m., Science is going to release an article that I have authored along with uh, 17 other co-authors, mainly public health people, ethicists, and political experts, trying to define what a fair and equitable distribution among countries is. We argue, and I think this applies not just to COVID, but to any situation like this where we have a scarce resource that needs to be distributed, we argue that there are three important values that ought to guide a fair and equitable distribution. Limiting harm, rectifying disadvantaged groups, and equal concern and respect, mainly non-discrimination against groups and people because of their race or their religion uh, or their sex. Those three principles lead you to distribute the vaccine where it will do the most to reduce the number of premature deaths. Right now, if we had, call it 100 million doses of vaccine, sending some of them to New Zealand not have a big effect in reducing deaths because New Zealand has actually done a very good job in terms of public health. But sending them to Peru or Brazil or Panama or the United States would make a big difference. And so we should rank countries by how much vaccines will reduce premature deaths and distribute the vaccine that way. 
Once we've reduced premature deaths, we then need to distribute the vaccine based upon the number of, upon rectifying and ameliorating economic and social deprivations, reducing the number of cases of unemployment and poverty, opening schools around the world. Those are the goals. And then the third phase is returning back to normal, getting countries to herd immunity. We think that's what a fair and equitable distribution means. It doesn't mean giving all countries a flat amount in say 3% of their population. It doesn't mean giving countries uh, on the basis of the number of healthcare workers they have or the number of elderly they have. If you think about it, an emergency room doctor would not say, all right, everyone in the emergency room, I'm giving each of you five minutes to address your problems. They would say, all right, who's got the most serious problems? That person with the heart attack, we're gonna do that. And you who have a sore throat and worried about strep throat, you're gonna wait. That's what we should do when it comes to distributing a vaccine uh, in the world. Where can it do the most good? Um, and distributing it by healthcare workers, and people over 65, that means a lot more vaccine will go to developed countries that have more healthcare workers per population, have more people over 65 compared to developing countries, which we all know because of deprivation and disadvantage, have few healthcare workers per population and a life expectancy that doesn't, that means they don't have that many people over the age of 65. So taking that principle, as a way of distributing vaccine among countries would actually prejudice against the poorest countries in the world. We are facing new times. Hopefully our response will get better. Uh, but it, once we get a vaccine, there will be big challenges on how to distribute it among countries and how to distribute it within the United States. All I can hope is that our leadership is capable of stepping up to that challenge because the world will be better and American prestige and soft power will be greater if we take appropriate leadership in the fair and equitable distribution of a vaccine uh, against COVID. Thank you very much. Dr. Emanuel, thank you so much for your insightful remarks and for helping us gain a sense of just how complex this COVID pandemic is both now and going forward. Uh, you've really given us a lot to think about and we will certainly value your perspective as we dive deeper into this conversation. Thank you again. Thank you. Good luck with a great conversation and a great program. Thank you so much.